Thanks for joining us. Coming up on NTD Business. The Biden administration is proposing the toughest car emission rules ever. A very aggressive push toward mass vehicle electrification. What's it going to do to car prices? Trump sues his former lawyer Michael Cohen after the unprecedented indictment against a former president. What is it for? Consumer inflation seems to be cooling. Annual inflation fell to its lowest rate since May 2021. What prices came down? The Fed projects a mild recession starting later this year in light of bank collapses. What does it mean for interest rates? Twitter chief Elon Musk talks to a BBC reporter. How did it go and what did Musk say about Twitter's financials? That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Great to have you with us, Don Ma here. The Biden administration is coming out with the toughest car emission rules of all time. Details are scarce, but EPA Administrator Michael Regan says they will eliminate over 10 billion tons of CO2 in the coming decades. This could mean two-thirds of cars sold in 2032 would be electric vehicles. What are the implications? This is very ambitious. To give you some context, Biden originally wanted half of all cars to be electric by 2030. Industry experts consider that goal itself to be a stretch. The New York Times said the new rules would force a revolution in the auto industry. It even suggested the scope of the revolution would be comparable to the impact Henry Ford had on the auto industry. During EPA Administrator Michael Regan's press conference today, a Reuters reporter asked if this rule would end the internal combustion engine. Regan replied that it's not the goal. This creates a conversation for uh, hydrogen fuel cells, uh, electric vehicles. Uh, We can look at uh, different variations of new fuel sources that we might have moving forward. Uh, I think we're giving the automobile industry options to choose from. And so when we look at uh, this proposal uh, and the opportunities to reach the very ambitious goals that we've set, uh, we're not prescribing any mandates uh, and we're not driving any particular technology out of business, so to speak. Another reporter from Fox Business brought up China. He said that China makes most of the electric vehicle batteries in the world. So wouldn't we be more dependent on China if we push so aggressively toward electrification? Regan said the ultimate goal is to be less dependent. This proposal doesn't kick in till model year uh, 2027. So we've got some years to ramp up. We hope that we can take advantage of, of that runway Uh, and and follow the investments of historic legislation to bring manufacturing, especially battery manufacturing, back here domestically. It's our goal that we don't overly rely on any countries. Uh, It's our goal that we are more competitive and don't rely uh, solely on China for batteries. Of course, not everyone believes this will work out. We talked to automotive expert Lauren Fix of Car Coach Reports. She's been working in the auto industry for over 40 years. She was the former president of the North American Car and Truck of the Year Awards and a member of the World Car Awards jury. All the rare earth minerals for the batteries, 80% of the mines are owned by China, so we will be beholden to China. But in addition to that, they're also digging up the earth, which means this is going to cause damage. If you look at cobalt, cadmium, mercury, lithium, all those are mined in South Africa, China, uh, the Ukraine, and a lot of these countries that it's just poisoning the environment. It's not just their environment, it's everyone's environment. Fix says the strict new rules are an overreach by climate activists who aren't looking at reality. She also says many people won't be able to afford electric vehicles, which are generally more expensive than internal combustion engine vehicles.
$66,000 is the average price for an electric vehicle. So don't forget, you're also going to have to pay for insurance. Yes, you could get a $7,500 tax credit, but part of the new infrastructure uh, or the Inflation Reduction Act, that changes everything. What that does is some vehicles are eligible, some are not. These new rules have not been implemented yet, so we don't know exactly how they'll impact car prices. But they are likely to raise car prices across the board because car makers will have to invest tremendously to convert to electrification. We talked to the managing editor of the Detroit Bureau, Michael Strong. He's been covering auto news for 30 years. Strong says the new rules will undoubtedly raise prices. We're a long way from significant price increases related to this, but I think it will be here before anybody wants it to be. Now, how much? That's tough to say because you just don't know what the pricing for battery materials are going to be and other factors that, you know, you know the steel that goes in the cars and that sort of thing. We reached out to the EPA. We asked them for their thoughts about the impacts on prices, and we asked for more details on the new rules. We'll keep you updated. Former President Donald Trump filed a civil lawsuit against his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, today. He's seeking half a billion dollars for damages, claiming Cohen breached attorney-client privilege, among others. The lawsuit is not legally related to the historic indictment against Trump brought about by the Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg last week. But any public comments Cohen made about that case could be used as evidence in Trump's lawsuit against him. Cohen was Trump's lawyer from 2006 to 2018. He was also a vice president for the Trump Organization. Cohen was convicted of federal charges related to campaign finance violations and other charges in 2018. Trump's lawsuit claims Cohen breached his contract when he publicly talked about Trump in books and media appearances. For example, he wrote a book about Trump titled Disloyal, a memoir. The lawsuit says Cohen's actions caused direct damage to Trump's reputation. And stocks ended lower today after minutes from the Federal Reserve last meeting revealed concerns from the recent bank collapses. More on that in just a moment. The Dow fell 38 points or 0.1 percent. S&P dropped 17 points or 0.4 percent. The Nasdaq lost 103 points or 0.9 percent. Headline CPI inflation down to 5 percent year over year. This is compared to 6 percent previously. Now, month over month, inflation nearly unchanged in March compared to February. Some contributing factors for the drop. Energy prices fell substantially, driven by lower bills for utilities and gasoline. Used car prices were also down. Food prices mostly unchanged in March compared to the month before, though egg prices fell 11% in March. However, core CPI looks to be sticky. The annual increase is at 5.6%. Month over month, the core CPI came in at 0.4%. Markets are looking at the reports positively overall. With me now is Carol Roth, recovering investment banker and author of the upcoming book titled You Will Own Nothing. Now, Carol, markets seem to have taken the CPI report well, moved up this morning after uh, it was released. What's your take on the CPI numbers today? Headline inflation, 5% year over year. Well, you always want to celebrate a victory, so it is good to see that inflation is slowing. I think we have to put it in a realistic perspective that historically it is still a very high number. So while it is trending in the right direction and perhaps means that the Fed um, not necessarily will pause right away, but may pause you know, sooner than if it was a higher number, I think that all of those things are, are good from the market's perspective. But on the flip side of that, um, you know, the idea of 
of why it's slowing and what may be ahead in terms of a potential recession and slowdown and what that means for consumers loading up on debt and businesses, you know, in, engendering a higher cost of capital and starting to lay off more. You know, that's the flip side of the coin. That's the, the price that we're paying for all of this crazy monetary policy we've seen over the last 15 years and then the Fed's reaction to it. So net-net, um, you know, a nice trend, but we are far from out of the woods here. Right. It's far from the, uh, the Fed's uh, inflation target of 2%, right? Do you think uh, the recent bank collapses, do you think that had an impact on the inflation data? I mean, certainly. I would think that people are... Um, you know, less willing to spend if they don't have the same level of confidence um, in the economy and in the banking system. And certainly everybody has been through the Great Recession financial crisis. They know what's ahead. We have seen personal savings tick up a little bit. So I do think that people are tightening their belts a bit because of what happened in terms of the banking crisis. But I also think that there's a natural evolution. You know, we have seen the shift from goods to services. And you saw that in the inflation number, we're seeing more inflation in services than we are to goods. We are seeing um, the consumers taking on debt. Their, their capacity's got to be getting close to, to um, being maxed out. So I think it's a little bit of each of those things and not just any one of those things. So in a word, I guess it can be summed up that we have to feel economic pain before we see inflation go down. I mean, isn't this what the Fed wants? Well, they certainly are trying to, quote unquote, destroy demand, and they're trying to do that in a way that brings it down without too much economic pain. Unfortunately, they're not getting a lot of help from the U.S. government who keeps spending. Their, their demand is not destructing, it's expanding. If you look at the CBO estimates that came out a couple days ago, uh, the deficit for the first half of 2023 was $1.1 trillion, which was like $430 billion more than you know the first half of the year last year. So the, they are trying to not inflict pain, but you know kind of quell demand. And because we have the government spending and also because we have these supply issues throughout the economy, I don't think they're going to be able to do that without everyone feeling some pain. And by the way, let's not discount the pain, the real pain that everybody has felt from this inflation that was caused by Fed policy and government policy. Right. I, I think what you're getting at is we shouldn't rely solely on the Fed to tackle this inflation problem. Absolutely not. In fact, the, the best policy that the Fed could do would say, you know what, we don't have any further tools to manage this. Government, we need you to step in. We need you to not only stop spending like a, you know, a, a crazy person, uh, but we also need you to enact policies that help the supply side of the equation, things that help uh, bring down energy costs, that get more people back into the labor market, that help uh, improve the housing supply. All of those things working together aren't things that the Fed can do. They can't print oil or labor or houses the way that they print money. So they really should put it on the government and force them to, to step up to the plate here. But unfortunately, I don't think the Fed has that backbone, and I don't think the government would comply anyway. All right. Thank you so much today, Carol. Pleasure talking to you. Same here. Minutes from the latest Federal Reserve meeting showed that some members considered pausing rate hikes. This was due to the bank collapses. But ultimately, after debate, the Silicon Valley bank collapse did not derail the Fed's rate hike campaign. 
What are some other key takeaways from the meeting minutes? We talked to an analyst. Joining me is Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. So the markets was doing pretty well this morning on, on the inflation data. And then the Fed minutes came. Uh, seems like the sentiment changed there. Um, maybe you can help us uh, digest this. What, what are some key points to, to take away from the minutes? Well, thank you for having me. I mean, it's, I found the minutes interesting that they are blaming perhaps a incipient recession, which they seem to expect, on the banking crisis. And it really wasn't that much of a banking crisis, um, rather than on their very sharp campaign of raising rates. I suppose that means if they're going to blame it on the banking crisis, then they won't have to actually deal with the fact that they were pumping up the economy for far too long, and that was one of the occasions behind inflation. Nonetheless, they seem to be a bit more sanguine about the future than they have been in the past. They may be expecting a recession, but they clearly it doesn't expect to be a very serious one. So is this the soft landing that uh, everyone has been talking about? Almost. It's the almost soft landing, because you can't say a soft landing involves a recession of any type, even a very small one. So, no, but it is probably a good deal better than they expected six or eight months ago when inflation was rising and it was looking like the Fed was very far behind the inflation curve. So it looks to be an improvement. And that's one of the things you're seeing in the markets in general, that this is a better outlook than what the Fed had anticipated probably just six months ago. Now, tell me a little bit more about the minutes. Uh, was it something that just confirmed everything we already know, or was it uh, any surprises in there? I think the, I think the, the, the surprise was the um, both acknowledgement that there's likely to be a recession and the implication that it's uh, going to be a relatively mild recession. I think that was a bit of a surprise. I mean, the Fed had been saying, well, we're hoping for a soft landing. We're hoping we can do this. But that's only one of the possibilities. And there's always a chance that we could get a recession or a serious recession. Normally, when you get such a steep rise in rates as the Fed has, has you know, put through, you really run the risk of a pretty steep decline in the economy. I think they're a little surprised that they're not getting it so far. First quarter GDP in the Atlanta Fed projection is still running at 2.2%. So I think that's probably the main surprise uh, from these minutes. The Fed projects 2024 uh, inflation around 2%. Or was it 2025? It's either 2024 or 2025. Do you think uh, that makes sense to you? Not particularly. Um, I think the Fed is being optimistic about this. You know, this is their usual way of dealing with an unpleasant present. They project what they want out into the future. They're masters of this, or at least they're great practitioners of this. They did that for almost a decade after the financial crisis. So I think we're saying the same type of thing. Now, I'm not saying inflation is not going to come down, and I think it is, and it has been. But I think they're being a little optimistic about that. But they always are. Well, all right. Thanks for talking to me today, Joseph. Pleasure having you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Elon Musk sat down with a BBC reporter to speak about assorted Twitter happenings. Twitter changed the label on the main BBC account. It's now saying public funded. Previously, it said government funded media. This came after the broadcaster objected to Elon Musk. NTD Shar Marshall has more. 
Twitter CEO Elon Musk told a BBC reporter on Wednesday the social media company is roughly breaking even. He said most advertisers have returned to the platform and its aggressive cost-cutting efforts have started bearing fruit after massive layoffs. The interview was live-streamed on Twitter Spaces, and much of it was Musk questioning the BBC reporter. This is, a, this is not an interview about the BBC. Oh, so. you thought it wasn't? <laughs> I, I see now why you've done Twitter Spaces. I am not a representative of the BBC's editorial policy. I want to make that clear. I asked a tech CEO, Bob Bilbrook, for his reaction to the Musk interview. He did kind of have a, a, a little back and forth with the BBC reporter because the BBC reporter was talking about hate speech. He's like, do you have an example of what hate speech is being permeated over Twitter? And, you know, can you give me details? And the, the reporter was a little bit stumped on that question. Musk said Twitter has about 1,500 employees now, a sharp decline from just under 8,000 staff members it had before he took it over in October. But he also included comments on some unexpected topics. You know, he and he's um, very whimsical. So he talks about how he sleeps on a couch at Twitter headquarters and how his dog is the CEO of Twitter currently. So, like, I mean, these are the kind of things that you get from a Musk interview. And the billionaire who also runs electronic car maker Tesla and a rocket company SpaceX said he has no one in mind to succeed him as Twitter chief executive. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And still to come, e-cigarette maker Juul agrees to pay nearly half a billion dollars to several states over its role in vaping among children. Is there systemic discrimination in the banking sector? One group says there is, and that financial institutions can debank you without any reason. That and more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. E-cigarette maker Juul Labs has agreed to pay almost half a billion dollars to six states in Washington, D.C. The $462 million settlement will be made over eight years. New York Attorney General Letitia James co-led the lawsuit. Today, she said, is the company's largest settlement so far for the role in the youth vaping surge. Juul's lies led to a nationwide public health crisis and put addictive products in the hands of minors who thought they were doing something harmless. E-cigarette use amongst middle and high school students more than doubled after Juul was first introduced in 2015. Juul rocketed to the top of the U.S. vaping market about five years ago, but the rise was fueled by use among teenagers. Parents and politicians have largely blamed the company for the surge in underage vaping. The settlement will force retailers to keep Juul's products behind counters and verify the age of purchasers. Juul must also stop using people under 35 years old in its marketing materials. The company says the settlement brings in near total resolution of its legal challenges. Juul has settled more than 5,000 cases. Is J.P. Morgan Chase debanking customers because of their religious and political beliefs? Some of the bank's shareholders say there is evidence of that. With a recent ruling by the Securities and Exchange Commission, the bank's shareholders will be able to vote on a proposal aimed at ensuring equal treatment. We talked to an attorney from the group Alliance Defending Freedom. The group represented one of the shareholders. Joining me now is Jeremy Tedesco, Senior Counsel and Senior Vice President with Alliance Defending Freedom. 
Now, Jeremy, their shareholder proposal says they're concerned about evidence of religious and political discrimination. What specifically are they concerned about? Well, no American should have to worry about losing their bank account or being denied payment processing services just because of their religious or political beliefs. And, and there's an uptick of that happening at J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, they've been debanking uh, individuals and organizations over the last few years in ways that clearly looks like political and religious discrimination. So the shareholders are concerned about that. They're concerned about uh, the impact on them as investors. Uh, and so they filed a resolution holding J.P. Morgan Chase accountable and asking them for transparency around those issues. I wonder if you can elaborate uh, on what you said that it looks like uh, discrimination. How do we know this? Well, J.P. Morgan Chase, the, the highest profile example of it is when they debanked Sam Brownback's new organization, the National Committee for Religious Freedom. It's a C4 that gives the candidates who are proponents of uh, religious freedom. They debanked them last year, and they gave no reason for it. They just said, we're no, gonna, not going to do business with you anymore. And when the pressure started to mount, J.P. Morgan Chase started uh, providing rationales that made no sense at all. And so it looked very much like they were just trying to cover over what was obvious political and viewpoint discrimination. And they have a couple other instances like this over the last few years as well. They debanked an, an event from uh, an organization called Defense of Liberty in Missouri back in 2019. It was a run-of-the-mill mainstream Republican National Committee event hosted by this organization, and they stopped payment processing for the tickets for that event. And so there's other examples like that, too, over the last few years with J.P. Morgan Chase. So the shareholders are concerned about this. They don't want the bank to be politicizing their services. They think it's bad for the business. It's bad for them as shareholders. And they're asking them to make changes. I wonder if you can classify it a, a bit more. Is this a systemic problem at the bank? Well, it certainly looks like it's a systemic problem at J.P. Morgan Chase, but it's really across the financial industry itself. Uh, late last year, 60 different um, uh, financial professionals and CEOs sent letters to several different banks and financial institutions raising the alarm around politicized debanking and the apparent increase in instances of that happening. Here's the thing I think your listeners need, really need to understand about this is the banks don't have to give you a reason for why they decline to do business with you. And this is the problem. They have incredibly vague policies that allow you to allow them to debank you for whatever reason they want, including viewpoint, but then they can cover that up by never being honest with you about the reason you're actually debanked. So you have to look at the last few years and say, look, we see an increase in this. And the other thing I think is really important is everybody kind of understands at this point that social media companies have been weaponized in these political debates. And the same thing is happening with the banks. The exact same proposal, you know, that was given to social media companies, adopt vague policies, you know, start putting your thumb on the scales of public de debate by deplatforming people. The exact same pressure is being mounted against banks. It's just debank people whose views we don't like. And look, it's a lot more dangerous for people if they lose their bank account than they, if they lose their Twitter account. And that's not to say that it's not important when people lose their Twitter account. That's, that's a violation of people's ability to express their point of view in the digital public square. But you have to have a bank account to live. And so this is very dangerous. Banks shouldn't politicize their services. It's bad for people on both sides of all different points of views. Um, and I'm happy that the shareholders are trying to hold J.P. Morgan Chase accountable. Well, thank you so much today, Jeremy, for raising this serious issue with us. Pleasure having you on the show.
Thank you. Still to come, Warner Brothers Discovery unveiling a new streaming service, combining content from its merger. We'll have that story after the break. Welcome back. There's a new streaming kid on the block. Well, sort of. It's called Max. At its core, it's a rebranding of the existing HBO Max. But it also adds content from HBO's new parent company. Warner Media merged with Discovery last year to form Warner Brothers Discovery. When it did, it brought more content brands under one umbrella. Max will offer content from properties including HBO, HGTV, Food Network, Cartoon Network, and TLC. It's scheduled to maintain HBO Max's current price point of $15.99 per month and launches on May 23rd. The service will also offer a cheaper version with advertisements and a more expensive version with 4K video and Dolby Atmos sound. And that's it today from the NTD business team and myself, Don Ma. Thanks for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.